Well, good morning. It's good to see those of you who made it out here today. So this morning, if it's okay with you, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus. Um, I was thinking, uh, we like Jesus, right? It's good. Um, I was thinking as we, as Alan uh, opened us this morning, how uh, Jesus offers us in Matthew 11, that he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. I think this morning, mentally, uh, we may feel burdened. We may feel anxious about all the things that need to be done. We may just feel ready for a break. But I want to invite you this morning that Jesus is here, and he's present with us, and he invites us to find rest uh, in our souls, the deepest place that we need it. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you that you are present in this room. You're present with us. You go before us. You are behind us. You hem us in. You see us. You love us. Thank you, God, for loving us, for meeting us where we are. God, we want to praise you. We want to worship you this morning. We want to pour out our praise, God. Uh, we want to hear from you. May you speak, God, and we make, may we recognize our need for you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I want to talk to you um, about Jesus. Uh, I'm going to predominantly be in John 11 and John 12 as we talk about the end of Jesus' public ministry, um, in John 11, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And we find that after he does this, there's great celebration in Lazarus' family with Mary and Martha. But we also find that Jesus retreats to the wilderness after doing this um, because he knows his time is coming. So as we find ourselves today, we find ourselves waiting uh, for Good Friday and Easter. We find ourselves in this story with Jesus as he's retreated um, away from public ministry because he knows that it's time has come. People are plotting for his life. He's going to be arrested soon. And so in John 11, we're given a history of Jesus's relationship with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We see Jesus in this story, his love for Lazarus, Lazarus, excuse me, and Mary and Martha. He enters into their suffering. He mourns with them, right? Some of us, when we were little, right, we learned the shortest verse of the Bible to memorize was Jesus wept, right? That was found in John 11. And that's found because he was compelled and moved so deeply and he was so troubled by his friend's death. But he also came in that story, as we find, to offer them hope, to say, and he proclaims in that story, that he is the resurrection and the life. And so... As beautiful and as hopeful that is for the family, uh, for some of the Jews that came to believe in him, we also see something else happening in this passage. So I'm going to read here from John 11, verse 45, I'm excuse me, uh, 43 to 48. They'll be on the screen here. So when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the chief priests and the Pharisees were the ones who were fearful of Jesus, the religious leaders of the day, right? And so in verse 53, after this council has met that he talks about in verse 48, we see them saying this. 
So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So this is the backdrop to what we find in John 12, where I want us to camp a little bit today. I want us to reflect on who Jesus is in this story, who Mary is, and who Judas is, and maybe learn some things about what it means to worship the true Jesus out of our hearts. In John 12, Jesus is finally re-entering public life. We find him in Bethany, and he's on his way to Jerusalem because he knows that his time has come for his death that's approaching him. He knows his certain faith as a, fate as the Son of God and as the Messiah. Everyone had been wondering what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, and many people had said, you are the Messiah. They had called him that. Before we read from John 12, I want us to take a step back and consider why Jesus was so threatening to the Jews and to the Roman leaders, and why they feared how the Romans would respond to Jesus. The Jewish understanding of the Messiah was very different than what Jesus appeared to be for them. When the Messiah would come, they would expect him to do certain specific things. The Messiah would come and restore the nation of Israel to its honor and to its glory. It had been under oppression for many years, and now it was under uh, the oppression, or at least the leadership of the Roman, Roman nation. And so it wasn't able to properly worship as it desired. They believed the Messiah would come and lead a revolution against Israel's enemies and find victory over them. As we move from John 11 to John 12, it becomes to be even more clear that the Jews are misunderstanding that Jesus truly is their Messiah, because Jesus has turned that notion upside down for them. It is part of the reason why we don't see Jesus calling himself the Messiah very much throughout the Gospels, because he knows that it will be misunderstood in the context that he's in. No one believed the Messiah would come ultimately to die. And as we know, if we're familiar with the Gospels all throughout John, John is talking about, and Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to die. So no one expects that from the Messiah. No one expects the Messiah to die a shameful death on the cross. But Jesus keeps speaking about his death. He keeps turning social customs on their head. He keeps challenging the religious elite who don't understand him, and yet he is also performing miraculous signs and wonders that's creating tension in the Jewish leaders. So all throughout John, we see Jesus, he's growing in popularity among the people. People are coming to believe in him. He's following, people are following him. He's growing in ministry. And at the same time, Jesus is, is really a controversial fi figure. We can't deny that. He's, he's bringing along controversy as his leaders are asking, who is he? What has he come to do? Why does he do things in this way? And so finally, again, we come to the climax in John 11 where he says, these leaders have finally decided that they are going to plot to kill him. You know, it's interesting because in the Jewish tradition, uh, and we see this in the Old Testament as well, that um, if anyone was a prophet, priest, or king, they would be anointed. They would be anointed for their ministry, anointed for what they have to do from God. And that would be a sign to the people that God had anointed them to do something. It's interesting because often the chief priests in the Old Testament were the people who would anoint the person to be a king or a prophet. And we find in John 11 that the chief priests are actually the very people plotting to kill Jesus. So who, who will anoint Jesus? Of course we know that the Messiah, or maybe you don't know this, means the anointed one. That's what Christos means. 
Ultimately, we know Jesus is anointed by God to do his ministry, and he has full authority and power to complete all the things that God would have him to do when he comes to die and bring salvation for all the people. We see that we know that Jesus will fulfill his ministry when he quotes from uh, Isaiah at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke 4. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And even though Jesus has been anointed by God, people, some people would be waiting for him to be anointed by a chief priest. So the question as we enter John 12 is who will anoint Jesus? Who will anoint him as a true Messiah? Who will show that he is king? So now let's read and look at John 12 together. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So in all four of the gospels, we find some um, account of an anointing of Jesus by a woman right before his death. It shows us that this story is significant in light of who Jesus is in his ministry. And in John, we find that it is Mary of Bethany who has anointed Jesus with a very costly perfume. We see that she's doing this, she's motivated in part uh, by responding in gratitude to Jesus for raising Lazarus that had just happened in John 11. Lazarus is, sitting, Lazarus is sitting right in the room with him. She's thanking Jesus. She has a relationship with him, a friendship with him, thanking him for that. She's, she's marking him and, and thanking him and reminding the people in the room that Jesus has the power to bring the dead to life. And her response is one of worship. Um, it's overwhelming response. It's extravagant. And it is misunderstood. So I want to say to us, um, I'm going to focus a little bit on Mary's act and what it has to teach for us. So I would say, first, sometimes we get so familiar with the scriptures that they become common to us. It's familiar, doesn't surprise us. But I want to say here today that what she did is a pretty scandalous act. She's a woman. That's scandalous enough in her culture to be in a room dining where men are having dinner together. Women wouldn't be present. They're eating. They're probably discussing maybe what had happened in the ministry. Maybe they have a deep theological question for Jesus. And this woman comes in, and she starts to touch Jesus. It wouldn't have been appropriate for her to start speaking, to enter into the conversation. So really all she has um, able to do is to, to do something for him, to act for him. And what she does, she pours perfume all over his feet, which is a little bit strange. Um, normally, we would anoint, and what we've seen in the scripture so far is anointing people with oil, and yet she, 
She takes this very costly, expensive perfume and spends it all on Jesus. Doesn't pour like a drop, but it says that she pours all of this ointment on him. The fragrance fills the room. And if that's not strange enough, she lets down her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now let's remember, Mary is a friend of Jesus. She seems to hang around him pretty often as we look at the gospel stories. We see Jesus esteeming her when compared with Martha, when they, he's at their house visiting with them, and she just, Mary is just simply sitting in his presence, being with him, learning from him. She must have been familiar with how Jesus spoke and how he led and how he was okay with breaking some social norms and conventions by talking to women, by eating with sinners and people that appeared to be drunk. We see that all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is pretty comfortable with people that we often are uncomfortable being with. She knows that he is deserving of all of her worship, no matter how it looks to those around her. So she lets her hair down. This is a pretty big deal in that culture. She begins to touch Jesus. What would this have meant to the disciples that Jesus was even allowing her to touch him in such a way? And yet he says, leave her alone. Jesus is defending her. Can you imagine someone doing this among your friends today? What would you think or consider if someone anointed with perfume the person that they loved the most? First of all, that person would probably have that perfume. We all know when someone has too much fragrance on, correct? Whether it's walking through a dorm hallway. I used to be an RD here, and every time um, I walked through the dorm in the morning, I realized, whew, everyone's been spraying their perfume in their fragrance, right? Because um, we mark ourselves with that. We want to smell nice. Um, but can you imagine actually pouring all that out on someone that you love? As the glass breaks, the perfume fills the room and everyone is watching her. Does she care? Does it matter to her what others think? Does it matter to you what others think when you worship Jesus? Her act was also sacrificial. She was giving her most expensive gift. We all know that love can be pretty expensive, right? For anyone who is maybe waiting a ring or wanting to purchase a ring for the one that they love. Love can be pretty expensive, or a dinner, or whatever your person loves, you know? We've, we've, we're pretty expensive people, I suppose. Um, my husband now has myself and two daughters in his family, and when we found out we were gonna have our second daughter, he was like, girls are expensive. <laughs> so, maybe we are, maybe we're not. But maybe Mary had reserved, this, uh, reserved the oil for her own burial or that of a friend, and instead she uses it for Jesus. Perfume was likely, it said in the story, a, a, a year's wages. For a low-income person today, that would be around $20,000. But she quickly poured it all on Jesus. It was gone in an instant. Often, some would say she didn't know what she was doing. When we worship, when we're faithful to Jesus, people from the outside can look on and think, oh, that person doesn't know what they're doing. But often we have to remember that we are called to respond in love and worship of Jesus no matter what those around us would say. Mary is modeling for us service and discipleship and love of him no matter what. And finally, the gospel writers would have us see this as a symbolic act. Mary, in some ways, whether she knows it or not, is acting as a prophet, anointing the king who is going to be led to his death. That's how Jesus interprets her actions. Since no one from the chief priest anointed Jesus, Mary was anointing him for what was about to come. 
In this act, she was claiming him king, Messiah, and that she believed who he said he was. That she was moved by faith in him raising her brother and she would give him everything. Jesus suggests that Mary's keeping the perfume in her possession and using it on him has achieved a greater, more meaningful purpose than perhaps she intended, announcing the nearness of Jesus' death and preparing him for, for burial. Again, let us remember that the disciples still up to this point hadn't understand Jesus' words about him having to die to accomplish the purposes that the Father had sent him for. And so really he's saying to them again, she's preparing me for my burial. It's burial. It's coming so soon. His time had come for him to glorify the Father, to become the king, to conquer death, to reveal that he is a true Messiah. But he will have to sacrifice his life first. So Mary's sacrifice of her, her perfume points us to the sacrifice that Jesus is about to endure for us on the cross. So what does this mean for Mary? In essence, I think this is one of Mary's who-do-you-say-I-am moments. We see earlier in the Gospels, um, Jesus asking the disciples, who do you say I am? People say, I'm a prophet. They say, I'm a teacher. They say, I'm all these things. But who do you say that I am? And we find Peter asking him that you are the son of the living God, basically declaring him Messiah as well. And for all of us today, and in our own uh, Christian life, we have to answer this question. Who do we believe Jesus is? So maybe the question is, who do I say he is? But truly, who do I believe he is? We can say all the right answers that we want. We're here um, getting a, an education that prepares us to answer, uh, give right answers to theological questions. But Jesus is after what our faith truly is. What is our motivation in our heart? We are all asked, who do we say Jesus is and how do we respond to him in worship and in love? Is he just a good teacher who makes us better people or is he our savior? So Mary's modeling discipleship for us. We'll see in the next chapter in John 13, Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet in the similar way that she is washing and anointing his feet for what is to come. So maybe we are inspired by Mary in this story. But maybe we are being convicted for responding like Judas. And I know this can be any one of us in the story. We can identify with Mary. We can identify with Judas at any day of the week. But let us pause for a second and reflect on the gender dynamic that's going on in this passage. Again, Mary is breaking so many social norms by touching Jesus' feet. And as I said before, she's modeling discipleship for us. She's modeling a life of service and love and responding out of gratitude for what Jesus has done. And then Judas calls her out on it, coming from his own place of brokenness and what he thinks is the best way to use the perfume. What if we in our community could honor the ways in which we all come to Jesus to worship him, whether male or female, the ways we worship, the ways we see things differently, the way that we follow Jesus? You know, in church growing up for me, I rarely heard a story on Mary. I rarely heard stories of women from the Gospels, even though they're in there. You know, right before this, we were talking um, in the Old Testament, we even see models of strong women like Ruth or like Deborah or Hannah. We see all throughout the scriptures women who are modeling a life of faithfulness to God. But we often don't hear those stories told in church. And I wonder today if we could ask ourselves why. Maybe there's something more going on here. I believe we have a lot to learn from the women in the Bible and the scripture, but I also believe we have a lot to learn from the women in this community. 
and if they could be welcomed into discussions, whether that's about theology or whether that's about how they are trying to be faithful to Jesus, I think that would reveal God's glory even more in our community as we're all image bearers created in, in God's image to glorify him. We see that even later in the story when Jesus comes to die, that the women are present. They're present at the foot of the cross. They're present, they're present again to uh, bring spices to his body after he has died. And in John 20, we see that Mary Magdalene is the first one to experience the resurrection when Jesus leaves the tomb. She's the first one to encounter him. So women have a prominent story in the Gospels, and we have stories to tell as well here. So let us again come back to look at how Judas responds to Mary. And he says in John 12, I'm going to read it again. We read it earlier from 4 to 6. He says this, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to was put into it. So Mary has just given this extravagant gift to Jesus, and yet she is misunderstood in her sacrificial giving. Now Judas, we have to remember, at this point, he still has a position of trust among the disciples. He's the keeper of the money bag. They believe, maybe more than anything, since he is keeping the money bag, that he would have an idea of how to best use the money. So when he says, let's give this to the poor, that seems like a very holy and religious response from him. It seems like maybe what Jesus would call him to do. All the disciples have been following Jesus throughout his ministry, and they've seen him giving to the poor, caring for the poor. So in Judas's mind, this would be a great challenge to what Mary has just done. Why, why is this okay? So we see that Judas, in the passage, is actually motivated by greed and not any holy desire. But outwardly, his response seems very logical. Again, it seems holy. But in his heart, he still needed to be transformed by Jesus, and he hadn't learned to see him for who, who, for who he fully was. And unfortunately, right, we see this lead to his betrayal of Jesus. Judas's greed and logic kept him, kept him from worship following fully before Jesus. And ultimately, we see this contrast, right, of Mary and Judas. And sometimes I think we do this too. We become like the religious elite. We become... Like we have all, we know we have all the right answers to say. We can challenge something that someone's doing. We think we have the authority to do so. And yet Jesus is, is pulling us back in the scene and looking at the heart. What is the state of Mary's heart? What is the state of Judas's heart? Because this is how Jesus responds to Judas. Leave her alone, he replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Leave her alone is in essence saying, what she is doing you do not understand. Ultimately, again, I think we need to remember, sometimes we have proper authorities, we have people in our life that speak into us, that give, speak truth to us, that help us to learn more about Jesus. But at the end of the day, our calling is to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to do. And so I think sometimes we forget that when we have a lot of other voices coming in and speaking about what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. Of course, we have the scriptures to guide us and to lead us, and ultimately they are our authority of how we are to act, but let us remember to keep our eyes on Jesus. And if we do that, maybe we will be the people who respond like Mary, 
and pouring out of perfume. Unhindered, extravagant, sacrificial, semi-scandalous inside of the culture that she was living in. Because Jesus desires our true hearts, our transformed hearts, that come to him out of faith, not because we have all the right answers, but hearts that come to him out of love and devotion for what he has done for us. So I want you to remember that Jesus, that same Jesus that we're being faithful to, is alive in you today. Because he has died and rose again, as we're about to celebrate in several weeks, we now have his power living inside of us. When others don't understand what we're doing or why we're doing it, we can remember that our ultimate call is to be faithful to him, to give everything to him and trust him in his greater plan. In the same way that the Father brought him glory in his death and resurrection, that God is working out his glory in our own lives. And so we, too, are called to lay down our own lives. You know, we looked at the picture of Mary and her giving sacrificially, and ultimately it points us to this greater sacrifice that Jesus is about to give when he gives his life. We, are too, are called to lay down our lives. We, too, in some way, are called to be fragrant offerings before God. So I want to read to you as a benediction out of Ephesians 5, which is verses 1 to 2. So this is my charge to you as we leave today. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me pray for you. God, we know that you have called us to great things. As a community, as individuals, we know that you have called us to be faithful to you. May we learn to know you. May our hearts be transformed from our head to our hearts, God. May we move from our head to our hearts so that we can respond to you in worship out of love and devotion and affection. God, that you may be glorified in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.